In this podcast, Matt Ward talks about future of jobs, e-commerce, and startup. So stay tuned. So welcome everyone to Jobs of Future podcast. Today we have with us Matt Ward uh, and his uh, brief bios. Matt Ward is an operator and early stage investor with a background in e-commerce, Amazon uh, growth hacking and SaaS startups. He successfully bootstrapped, built and exited uh, two companies in the e-commerce and crowdfunding space and is now focusing on investing in the very best tech startups. On top of all this, uh, he is one of the foremost experts on Amazon e-commerce and uh, FB All-Stars, a leading podcast on how he scaled an $8,000 investment into a seven-figure exit in 12 months. On the side, Matt advises several early-stage startups with growth tactics, network effects, e-commerce sales, marketing, and overall business development. He's an entrepreneur and builder through through and through and started the syndicate to help entrepreneurs uh, and investors build the business of the future with the eye on huge uh, returns. So with that, Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. That's a mouthful. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. So uh, I think what I find, uh, what I found really exciting about um, your, your, uh, your, your journey and your background is uh, number one, your depth in e-commerce space and that's uh, we know has been rapidly evolving or disrupting if not evolving is is, a, is an understatement and number two um startups uh having exited few and involved with few so why don't you walk us through your journey so my journey is long and convoluted and goes a lot of different directions i'm a bit add so that's what happens <laughs> so i studied mechanical engineering i found out fast there's no freaking way i was working for someone I got into starting my own products, starting my own businesses. I got into e-commerce a little bit too late. I figured out this dropshipping thing when everyone knew the dropshipping thing. I'm sure a lot of people here are familiar. And slowly and steadily started to find my way. I got into crowdfunding. I built the top crowdfunding podcast, Art of the Kickstart, and was doing consulting only to find out people don't have money to, to pay you. I don't know if you can swear on this podcast or not, but they didn't have, they didn't have anything to pay if they're trying to raise money. So I got into making my own products. I started a home and garden line. I scaled that up just, I'm not a, a garden guy. I just wanted to build the business, have a little bit of money so I could focus on shit that actually mattered. So that's more or less what I've been transitioning to now. I run the syndicate, which is an investment network and podcast, and then Fringe FM, which is a bit like a long form TED. The goal being to try to push humanity to a, a more long-term view of the future. People think much too short-term instant gratification, which is why we have the stock market, which is horrible and ceos are incentivized to get their bonuses now and screw the growth in the future so i'm trying to fix that a little bit we'll resume after a short break this part of the podcast is brought to you by first friday fair fastest ai powered way to find your next opportunity check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job let's get back to the podcast uh, so um, it's 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 interesting. So fringe.fm. So definitely um, uh, a good conversation to have. And I think one thing that even I we found exciting with, uh, with with jobs of future is the same thing that as as we're evolving, a lot of folks needs to be told of where the where the world is world is heading to, and we sort of need a dialogue. So I do appreciate you sort of um, getting into that arena and sort of helping a lot of us out in understanding what's going on. So uh, where do you spend your time today, nowadays? 
everywhere. Um, that's that's one of the nice things about what I'm doing now is I can be a little bit ADD. So with Fringe FM, I get to talk to the smartest people, be that researchers, investors, entrepreneurs, in a variety of different fields, AI, space, biotech, genetic engineering, consciousness. And I really enjoy that. And it gives me the ability to meet very interesting individuals and startups. So between advising companies, running Fringe FM, and then angel investing in the podcast with the syndicate, that kind of takes up my time, but also allows me to focus on a lot of smaller projects. I like advising particularly because I'm able to work with a company, help with growth, marketing, and strategy to scale the business up, and then say, okay, here's what you do. I'm going to introduce you to people. Now go do it. And I don't have to do it. It's hands off. Mm. So that's uh, it's, um, it's nice for me. Interesting. And and now let's let's talk about your journey. Uh, so your e-commerce background. What have you seen over your experience with, with e-commerce platforms out there? How is how are they evolving? Like what we can what we can learn from what has happened in the past and where the world is heading to in, in terms of e-commerce? Like what what would be your your insights? If you look at business models, as soon as someone figures something out, then they start to sell that something, that strategy as a course. Then it suddenly becomes more and more competitive. And as it becomes more competitive, it becomes less lucrative. So the, you're kind of on like an up and down business cycle trend. So we saw this with dropshipping. Tim Ferriss popularized this with the four-hour work week of let's launch a business. We don't have to buy anything. We're just going to sell stuff. We'll run ads and we'll make some money. And then it'll be 10, 20, 30% margins and we can crush it. And as this got more and more and more competitive, it got ground into the, into the dirt, so to speak. The transition from that became FBA, fulfilled by Amazon. So working with Amazon. Amazon was initially their own platform. They were selling their own products. And they opened up to third-party sellers. By opening up to third-party sellers, they created one of the greatest business opportunities in the world. But they also had the knife behind their back, getting ready to stab sellers in the back, which is a bit of what I saw and a bit of what sellers see is, Today, there's a lot of people selling on Amazon and doing really, really well. We built our business very quickly and successfully. Others have gone much larger, much faster. And the thing is, you're still playing on someone else's platform. When you're playing on their platform, I've seen $10 million sellers get suspended overnight for doing nothing. And you need to keep in mind that anyone can kick you out of their house when they choose. So what we've been seeing is a large strengthening of these platforms, Amazon specifically worldwide. Amazon's trying goal is to eat a bit of commerce in every single in every single dimension. So be that goods, be that healthcare, be that food. And we can see them doing it pretty effectively. The defense strategy is building your own brand, your own standalone site. So we've seen Shopify become very, very strong. And a lot of merchants are selling on Shopify. That said, it's very challenging because you have to drive traffic there, which has become increasingly competitive because of Facebook ads and Google ads. As those get saturated, the costs go up. People start moving to influencer marketing and other ways of trying to drive people to their site so they can convert. But what, what you see in general with e-commerce is it's becoming more and more competitive. And if you're, selling, uh, if you're selling a product that no one gives a shit about, you're not going to be able to do a very good job of it. It doesn't matter what you're selling. If there's not some way to make it branded and exciting, if someone can order this type of toilet paper or that type of toilet paper, you're, you're never going to have a brand or a business. And we're moving more and, towards, more and more towards that world where anything CPG is commoditized by Amazon. And then the higher end stuff tries to differentiate itself, possibly by going direct to consumer, possibly by doing other things, possibly by just having Mac style branding so people are willing to pay way too much money for things. But uh, th that's kind of a nutshell where we see e-commerce moving. And I see Amazon eating more and more of commerce with Amazon Basics. They, they've been launching more and more and more products, basically just using the data they get from sellers to be able to kick those sellers out and then start selling their products. 
far cheaper, but make larger margins. Interesting. I think you you raise a very interesting point. So that that uh, still the platform is Amazon's, and and they can they can kick you out anytime they want. So you can never own that space uh, that much. So from from your vantage point, so if if you look in the in if we sort of look in the past trends, every business is like a like a like a sine wave, or and like a, like uh, they have their sort of uh, curvy cycles. Um, they grow, they sort of they fold, and then few um, uh, others come into the market, and then then the cycle repeats. In the case of Amazon, like so, they are pretty much disrupting the industry nowadays. Like a lot of businesses, we are seeing that uh, every time, every now and then, everyone is folding um, their their physical warehouses or and what and what not. So, is there is there any resolve for anyone who is not on Amazon to think about their ex- their existence? Like, what what's your vantage point and what what? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair fastest ai powered way to find your next opportunity check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job let's get back to the podcast your thoughts on that the problem is being on amazon be, not be on amazon so they probably are not going to amazon because they realize that it'll become a larger and larger part mm-hmm. of their sales so they're like okay we don't want to li- literally lift the gun to our head and hold it there that's kind of what selling on amazon is but it is such an accelerant as well because of the platform I think if you're selling off of Amazon, you need to be very good at two things. A, you need to have a freaking awesome product, which I think is just a given today. And then the second thing is you need to be really good. You need to be able to beat everyone else when it comes to marketing, cost of acquisition. So whether that's Facebook channels, whether that's you building up a YouTube presence, you have to have something that's differentiated. And then ideally, what you want to build on top of that, which most people don't build is some type of recurring revenue. If you're able to, in some way, take your business and make it into something where the product is actually a lead magnet for something else. So if you're selling health supplements and suddenly you make that recurring, if you're selling, um, I don't know, shoes, and then there's access to a running community online, a membership site. If you're able to have something else tying people together, even if it's not largely valuable, but if it's mm-hmm. something else, then you have some type of differentiation that will help you survive. But e-commerce is getting more and more challenging. Interesting. And so for a new entrant, right? So if, if I'm a business and I'm, I'm trying to get into the space, what should I worry about? And what should sort of, um, what would be your two cents for, for a new entrant coming into an e-commerce space as, as, a, as a sort of selling their merchandise? For someone that's already selling or for someone that wants to start an e-commerce brand? They wants to start an e-commerce platform. If if they want a, a platform or, or a brand, sorry. A brand, sorry. Yeah, a brand. If, they, if, if you want to start an e-commerce brand, you need to identify, you need to identify a spot in the market where there is some type of arbitrage essentially that you can do. So like if you look at a Casper, Casper is purely arbitrage. What happened was the, the market for buying and selling mattresses was hugely bloated and overcomplicated. You have to go to a mattress store. There's a million different options. You have to lay on all of them. Typically, you're probably going to like all of them. And then you have a salesperson who's paid way too much with way too much commissions trying to oversell you on something overly expensive that they paid way too much money for. So what what Casper did is they saw, okay, this is a shitty experience, but you're only going to buy so frequently. So we have to be really efficient. But if we manufacture this and we bring it direct to consumer, we can do a killer job because we can have way lower costs and thus screw all the mattress companies we're going to win which is exactly what's happening. And now there's a ton of knockoffs. That's what happens when you have something innovative like that. The problem is everyone's trying to do this now. So while Warby Parker and other companies like that have done really well, 
it's only because the markets were incredibly inefficient. If you're dealing with a relatively efficient market, direct-to-consumer is not going to matter significantly. For people that are interested in e-commerce, if you go to medium.com and search for my name, Matt Ward, or just Matt Ward e-commerce, I've got a really, I've got probably two or three really long posts on e-commerce and what you can look at, which models are broken and which models actually work. Interesting. And so if, if, if I'm an entrepreneur uh, and I'm, I'm sort of running a uh, uh, sort of an e-commerce brand um, or a merchandise that I'm selling, what are some of the things that I should keep a, keep a, keep an eye on on sort of that I will exist? Like, what do you think are some of some of my indicators of success uh, in the platform? If you're not trying things that are failing, you're going to fail. So I think in e-commerce and in any business, you need to be exploring new channels and avenues and seeing what works and what doesn't. So you start selling on Instagram, you start selling on Pinterest, you start selling on Facebook's marketplace. You try all of these different things and you see what works. You put a little bit of resources to it, 80, 20. 20% of effort will give you 80% of the results. Now, the 20% is going to be selling on Amazon, but you need to find the other ways that you can build those off channels that give you the chance to expand where others aren't trying. Because if you're doing things that others aren't trying, you can do really well. But if, if you're not, then ultimately you'll be successful until you realize you don't exist. Interesting. And, and if, from, from, a, from an investment point of view, from, from an investor point of view, if you look at if you look at an uh, yeah, an e-commerce proposal or any an e-commerce startup, how do you evaluate that? Like, what are some of the things that that excites you and and sort of you say, okay, these are the good indicators to for me to engage further. I'm going to be honest. There's a lot. There's not a lot of e-commerce companies that get me that excited. It has to be able to go very big, and yet the differentiation cannot only be just marketing. If you're selling something like someone else and you're doing a better job of acquisition. Ultimately, you're still going to lose to Amazon because they don't care what it costs. So if that your differentiation is something very small, it's not going to make it. I, I would want to see something that's new and novel, i.e. a patented or completely innovative product or something that already has significant traction and an alternative type business model. So uh, an example, um, I've invested in two different companies, public goods. Public goods is a bit like a... It's a bit like a, like a Costco. You're, you're paying, uh, imagine a high-end luxury Costco. You're paying a, um, a membership fee to get access to have really, really low prices on luxury organic goods. You're paying $3 for everything on the site, each thing. But you're paying a monthly membership fee. So they're doing really well because they're manufacturing. They're going direct to consumer, but in a, in a whole scale model. So they're, they've reinvented the business model and are doing really well because of it. Other, other areas where e-commerce can be interesting is not necessarily in directly selling the product, but in selling the product with recurring revenue. So if you're selling, I don't know, a VR headset, but you have access to VR content and people are paying for that, or service providers on top of the, on top of the e-commerce experience. So another company I invested in, OpenFan, the, they actually went through Calacanis's uh, launch incubator. Basically what they're doing is scraping data and pulling out Amazon style analytics for everything you've ever bought ever and giving that information to brands. You're opting in so you get access to free tickets, et cetera. And then because of that, you're, you're sharing your information so that not just Amazon has it. Those are three that are really interesting. And then if you want to look at e-commerce, the fringe stuff. So as you get into VR and a, a world where we do have increasingly augmented and virtual experiences, there's going to be a lot of money in that. Someone's got to design that marketplace. The marketplace will probably be black market initially. And with new technologies, it's usually driven by porn or gambling. So if you, if you look at something like that, you can kind of see how the, how the business models could evolve. But looking at the ways that 
e-commerce will look in 5, 10, 20 years, not what it looks like today that would be a good addition. Interesting. So how real are these VR and AR uh, platforms from, from a vantage point? Are they from a business sense? Are they are they making sense? Or like what? How do you evaluate those those platforms? If you're evaluating something to invest in, it doesn't have to make sense. The only thing you have to think about is there's a couple of things. But what could happen if this goes right? How big could this be? Because as an investor, you're not looking for a three, five, ten x return. You're looking for something that could be a hundred, a thousand x. Because you're going to miss so many times that it's going to be the home runs that return everything else a million times over. So in terms of those type of things or the different platforms, you could also look at like a speech with Alexa. By the way, Amazon's using Alexa so that they can just sell you Amazon basic stuff. You're going to ask Alexa for anything and it's just going to ship you the Amazon version. But exploring those different types of those different types of channels or those different technologies that are related to e-commerce, you need to think about the ones that could be game changing. So VR could potentially be game-changing. How do you find the companies to invest in for that? You need to look at the ones that have really strong teams and a decent amount of traction. VR headsets aren't doing all that phenomenally currently. It's somewhat dumb that we have AR and VR headsets and they're not the same thing. At least once they're the same thing, you can double the market size. But we're, we're moving towards the point where they become cheaper and cheaper and content increases. The, the content platform specifically, like, the YouTube for VR, obviously, that'll make a ton of money. And if you've got a YouTube, obviously, you can throw some type of Amazon affiliate system into that. You can throw advertisements into that. And then you suddenly have e-commerce. Interesting. And and, and, and from, from your outlook, do you see um, any challenger coming in to, to challenge Amazon Marketplace? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. No. You see now. Okay. Um, I would say it would be, it, it's pretty nearly impossible at this point. What, what you could see that could be interesting would be if like a Taobao Alibaba decided to enter the U.S., and partner with a Walmart or something. Hmm. Then you could potentially see a shakeup. You could also see the U.S. government getting antsy. I know Trump doesn't like Bezos hmm. because he reports about the news. But there, there's lots of potential ways, but I don't see Amazon getting disrupted in any meaningful way. I see the I see the, very much the opposite happening, be, becoming stronger and stronger every day. Interesting. And, <clears throat> okay, um, it makes sense. So, um, <clears throat> Uh, so what what are some of the so what are some of the exciting um, parts that you see nowadays in startup world? So what are some some of the things that that you find exciting? <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, there's there's a lot of exciting things. So um, I don't know if you know Peter Diamantis. He runs the X Prize, mm. but I'm not sure if he said it. But someone said it, and something to the effect of, it takes about the same amount of effort to do 10x or 100x results as it does just doing something. And it's just it, the difference is how you think about it and what you're trying to achieve. So you see certain startups today, and they're they're thinking completely differently. So on, on Fringe FM, it's it's like a long form TED. I get the coolest people on to talk about the the fringe technologies. We had Mike Selden. He runs Finless Foods, and they're a clean meat company. They're bio manufacturing fish. We can have fish without killing them. I think that's an incredibly interesting 
incredibly promising field. We're, we're going to look back at the, the animal agriculture of the past hundred years, and that'll be one of the great tragedies of our era, in my opinion. So companies like that that are dealing with genetic engineering and genetically manufacturing products. Same thing with leather, anything that can t- remove animal suffering. There's a ton happening there. There's a lot happening now in space tech. So since we got the iPhone, courtesy of Mr. Jobs, everything has been going down, 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 because more and more people have been buying phones. The mm-hmm. phone components go down, so the accelerometers, et cetera. And now you're holding a supercomputer in your hand that's better than anything they had 10, 20, 15 years ago. Suddenly, we're using this and go- moving more towards that in space technology, where they're launching smaller and smaller satellites with really cheap hardware, and you can launch hundreds, thousands of them for the price that it would cost to launch one in the past, which means startups can now get into the game. It's venture scale fundable. So we had another guy, Frank Bunger. He's building a a space station. He's building a hotel in space, Orion's fan. You'll be able to, I mean, it's wicked expensive. For $790,000, you'll be able to go and live in space for 12 days. And that's pretty freaking cool. So the the areas that are becoming really interesting for for me personally are the, the areas where there's convergence. So while several technologies come together, typically it's AI, genetics, IoT, robotics, and um, miniaturization, so space-type technologies. As those start to come together, it's very, very interesting. The other one would obviously be human, human augmentation and human, human longevity enhancement, which there's a lot happening in those fields as well. Interesting. And, and uh, from the um, getting back, back to the e-commerce space, like what are some of the challenges and opportunities that you see um, that are really inviting some disruption, if, if not already? In e-commerce specifically, where you could see disruption, um, I would say the easiest way to think about this would be, what do you have in your house and what didn't you buy from Amazon? There's probably a couple of things that you have in your house that you didn't buy from Amazon. So maybe your refrigerator, maybe a microwave, maybe a couch. There's areas like this where Amazon is terrible when it comes to furniture. Just for whatever reason, um, my, I have a business partner that sells furniture on Amazon. It just does not go that well. Wayfarer does significantly more volume. And I would try to explore those areas of where that is and why that is. And if you want to get really interesting in terms of how e-commerce is going to start to play, look at products like the, the Amazon Echo or the Google, whatever the heck it's called, Google Home. I saw an analyst and his his business strategy was Google should send a free um, Google Home to every country and, or every house in the US because the data they would get and the ability they would have mm-hmm. for upsells would become instantly interesting. They, it's basically a loss leader. It doesn't cost them very much money, but because they're suddenly able to control that interaction, they can do advertising, they can sell products, they can do better advertising online. So those areas are interesting. And then as we, as we move towards an autonomous vehicle future where we're driving around, there's a lot of implications for e-commerce as well because if I'm driving around and I don't have to do anything, I can watch videos, I can watch Netflix, I can shop on Amazon, I can have, I can have a chef in my car. I mean, we can have restaurants that are on wheels. You can have um, brothels that are on wheels. You can have just about anything. So the, the concept of e-commerce, it doesn't necessarily have to be online. It can also be commerce that comes to you, which I think will be an interesting an interesting world. Interesting. That's actually that's a very um, cool thought, and I think we're sharing that. So, um, in in your experience with with startups coming um, and sort of you're seeing looking around, 
what are some of the some of the things that that um, that is wrong with current that startups or businesses or ventures today like do what are some of the things that that thing that could uh, could be improved i would say there's two main problems and they're completely contradictory it's either startups are thinking too big or startups are thinking too small so let me let me explain so i'm an advisor for a company called coral and what what we do is revenue share based financing if you're running a business rather than giving up equity to raise some money if you've got money coming in we'll help fund you so that you can grow the business bigger faster and not have to give up anything which is beautiful for e-commerce companies for saas companies for people that have a business but it's not a venture scale business because if it's not something where there's a billion dollar type outcome then there's no one who's willing to fund you unless you've been around for 2 plus years and have tax records a bank's not going to touch you and neither is a vc because the way their returns are structured it has to be exponential so those type of companies for looking at like a coral so coral.io trying to have companies that aren't going necessarily for massive scale but are just building meaningful businesses so that would be the one side and the flip side of that would be companies aren't thinking big enough so it's this 10x thing that i was talking about there's a lot of companies that want to build the next snapchat the next stupid social media company the next better advertising so we can track you even better across the the world and show you all of these terrible ads you don't actually want to see. We see a lot of people that are dealing in these areas SaaS as well. There's a lot of people that are just focusing on software businesses. And in the grand scheme of things, that's completely irrelevant. That's really not improving the world all that much. That's pretty much arbitrage that just about anyone could do. And you can make a ton of money doing it, but there's not enough people thinking bigger, larger scale. So that's that's my goal with Fringe FM and ultimately my goal is to launch a 100-year venture fund, a forever fund. So if you go to fringe.fm you can see a little bit more of what I'm talking about but people that are building businesses that have the potential to meaningfully change the world in a way in in ways for the better so like the the clean meat guys they're thinking about we want to do this and we want to do this because it will make the world better and make money so where you can look at those type of potential impossible scenarios impossible is just something that no one has decided to do yet generally speaking so trying more impossible and less easy money interesting so if if i'm an entrepreneur so how would how would i keep a check on myself when it comes to am i thinking too big or too small like how how would i gauge that um, statement or evaluate that statement i think everyone's thinking too small i would say, i would say how do you 10x it so whatever you're thinking just 10x that and then if it still if it still seems realistic 10x that So the biggest problem is realism realism is just setting setting boundaries on yourself. If you're if you're working in a job, it seems impossible to quit the job. If you start a business and the people you around you have started business and failed, it seems impossible to succeed. If you know a couple people that are running their own business and they're working 80 hours a week and they're getting by, then that then doing better than that seems impossible. The the concept the important point is when you suddenly 10x something it doesn't change the difficulty it just changes how you have to think about that you mm-hmm. might have to hire different people you might have to think about scaling different you might have to think about raising money or not raising money or how you structure the business and strategically elon's a good example so he he had a couple of major missions the spacex one was i want to put people on mars i want to have 3 million people because if something happens to earth we're all screwed an asteroid a crazy terrorist a nuclear war etc so he thought how do i get there Well, I need to be able to make space travel cheap enough so that 3 million people can afford it. We probably need about a million dollar price point to do that. The price point for putting someone into space at that point was 
it was a hundred or a thousand times larger than that. So the main cost got, that went into orbit to getting people up was actually the, the rocket itself because we scrapped a rocket every time we sent it into space. So he said, fuck that. If we can reuse the rocket, there goes 99% of the costs. And now I'm much closer. So he figured out a way to make a rocket land itself so that he could reduce the costs purely for this mission. Obviously, it helps SpaceX. It helps all of that. But he designed the goal and then put the journey back in place. He stepped back to see what had to be done. If you do that really well, I mean, we're not all Elon Musk. But if you do that, you can accomplish significantly more. And that's what I would challenge people to do is see what type of impact you want to create, 10x that, and then think about how you get there. Because even if you fail, you still have achieved incredible results. Interesting. And, and from your vantage point, what are some of the components of a successful startup uh, to invest in? Like if, if, I'm a, if, I'm a, if I'm a startup and I'm sort of um, evaluating this idea of raising money, when do you think is the right time for me to go out and, and ask for it? And what are some of the things that I should, that should ensure me getting a, a good attention from, from, from the most important, the most important thing is the team you need, you need traditionally more than one person is better because it's, it's a freaking roller coaster. You've got to be able to take the ups and the downs. The most important thing about a startup is the founders, how motivated they are for the mission. And if they're willing to have the shit kicked out of them day after day and still keep fighting, I, in my opinion, you want founders that are quite literally obsessed with what they're trying to do. The passion, passion's great, but we all lose our passion when times suck. But if you're obsessed about something, you're still going to do it. I think that more than anything else is the most important. The second driving factor would be how good they are at convincing other people to come along for the ride. So you could be the world's greatest developer, but if you're not good at building a team and getting people around you, you're just going to be the world's greatest developer. You're not going to do very much. So those would be the two biggest things. Even if they're solving the wrong problem initially, successful people that are winners will ultimately win. So most investors would try to bet on them, even if the idea wasn't great. That said, you typically need a good idea to at least get a meeting though, or a really strong background. Interesting. So I think one thing that, that I, I hear a lot uh, from, from folks uh, who, who are pitching us is that um, hey, finding a co-founder is difficult, and 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 sure, if I have money, I can pay and get a good good talent uh, to join in. But with the frugality of a startup and one entrepreneur-based company, it's almost a nightmare scenario to sort of convert and get. I don't have my cousin who can work for me or something. What would you say to them? What what would be your advice to those startups uh, who are just one-person startup and? they find it nightmarishly hard to, to scale up. It gets a thousand times harder, so they're not going to make it. Um, it starts out easy and gets less easy. So if you can't attract founders, you're either not the person that can attract people or you're not trying hard enough. It's most likely the second one. And if you're not trying hard enough, you're not worth funding anyways, unfortunately. And it's, that's a hard, it's a hard truth, but it's something that people need. I mean, it's something that I struggle with. It's something everyone struggles with. But the question is, how bad do you want it? And if you want it bad enough, you'll do it. And if you don't want it bad enough, you'll complain about it. Interesting. Because I think one thing that, that um, even um, we were seeing as a pattern nowadays, like with, with, the, with the advent of social media and sort of a uh, lot of folks are pretty much isolating themselves in front of their screen and sort of doing, doing this stuff. Um, and even in, in, in the job market, I can, like, we, I can see some parallels in which sort of, uh, I remember that one of the 
Department of Labor guy from one of the city uh, town hall here. Uh, they they reached out to us saying that Vishal, you know what? We have a lot of um, startup funding or not sort of funding, but small business grants that we could oh. issue out to folks. But all we get is like one single guy approaching us saying, hey, I can help. But they said, I would rather have like two, three people sort of combine, come and sort of saying, hey, we can, we can find this thing. And he, he has a very strong point. So he said that, Vishal, what if uh, two or three truck drivers who have just been let go because of this automation could come together starting off their own sort of traffic analytics company or whatever. But talking to those guys, they all work in their isolation. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, is there anything that maybe investors or, or investment circles could do to bring at least those wandering sort of um, orbitals to just come hang around together so at least they can form? Or do, do you see there are already places that, that folks could, could check out? I would say co-working spaces are really good. Incubators can be good. Um, meetup groups. I would say you've got to put the effort in. I, I think investors could do a better job of this in terms of having events and such. But it's, um, it's kind of the question of the totalitarian government. Do you want the government to tell you what you should do? Or do you want to be able to take the initiative? And if you're not taking the initiative, then there's the other problem. It's, um, I think it's a really hard thing. But I think the, there is a trap of falling, falling into your computer screen, which a lot of us do. I definitely do it. Everyone does it. I think you kind of have to force yourself to get out there because you know that it's important. Because I think this, because so, even even um, my observation, like this is some of the pitches pitch that that I have heard uh, in in last couple of probably months, or is either they are dorm roommates uh, from the same school, they thought, hey, let let me work together, or they are maybe some some distant relative that somehow they just found they work together. So I I always sort of try to figure out, hey, have they really sold this idea with a passion to someone, and they both sort of, as you rightly said, that they both are pretty much. Um, uh, strapped to this idea to uh, to sort of take it to to, to the end to for, for me to believe that they are a right team. So interesting. And and what are some of the tenets of an of a, of a investor? Like what are some of the some of the qualities of a successful investor? I think a successful investor means someone who's always hustling, always learning, and always meeting new people. So it's a lot of the stuff we talked about before. If you aren't focused on learning new industries, you're going to struggle. If you're not focused on adding value, you're going to struggle because if you're not adding value, then someone's just going to go to a Sequoia benchmark, someone that's a, a larger VC firm that has the brand name behind them. So that's that's kind of what I try to do is just try to hustle. I use the syndicate, I use our network, and then I used my personal network to try to connect companies with people that they need to know, connect them with investors, connect them with possible employees, um, businesses, clients, et cetera. In terms of evaluating companies, I think you need to know that you don't know. You need to take the time to diligence the company. And then you need to be good at reading people. I think a lot of, a lot of the decisions we make as people, both in business and in life, are gut decisions. Your gut will tell you yes or no. And it's a pain in the ass because you don't know why. But it's kind of the same thing like a, a neural net black box. It's going to give you a yes or a no, and you're not going to know why. But oftentimes, it's going to be correct because it's based off of past learning. I think that's more or less how the gut works as well. So if you see someone and they give you the wrong feeling, you don't invest. You just say no. If you see someone and you really like them, that doesn't mean you invest, but it means that they have at least the chance and you can go further. Interesting. And um, if I'm an entrepreneur looking for an in investor, 
what should what should what quality should i be looking at so say when it comes to seed funding or series a or series b what are some of the um, if you can walk me through some of the mindset of entrepreneurs and and or at least what the right mindset of entrepreneurs that when at what stage what should uh, what should they expect from an investor they should start at least 6 months early from when you need money it's going to take a while you want to ping your network and try to get as many connections and meetings as you can you want to start the pitch process and try to optimize it get better at it make your deck better an advisor or outside person can help a lot with that in the initial stages and then to, um over the process try to get better and better at refining it based off of what the questions they ask in terms of what to look for in an investor i think it depends if you're in the situation where you're able to decide what to look for in an investor it means you're doing pretty well so go and get as many pitch meetings as you can with investors that have invested in related companies so if i'm building an e-commerce company i'm not going to go talk to a space tech investor if i'm doing a, a genetics company i'm not going to go talk to yada yada so make sure that you're looking at someone who's already looking at the field you're looking at doesn't have a competitive company in their profile and then i would say if you're lucky enough try to pick the investors that you like specifically the one you're meeting with because that's the person you'll have the relationship with over time whether that's an angel investor whether that's a venture capitalist they're the person they're going to be with you for 5 to 10 years it's um uh partnerships is like marriage without sex so you're going to be in it for a long long time now on the flip side most companies aren't that fortunate you in most situations have to pitch everyone you can pitch and take the money you get at least initially if you can build up enough traction then you'll have people knocking down your doors so like with whatsapp literally some of the top investors in the world are going to their doors trying to find them so they can invest in the company but that only happens once you have serious traction so if you're just a traditionally an entrepreneur trying to get started hit up your network try to get connections look at linkedin to see who can introduce you and hustle your face off interesting and and um so if if i am talking to an an uh, an investor so what should i expect from them like what besides besides money um what else do i need and 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 how are they different from advisors that companies have i would say if you're talking to an investor your number one goal should be to get a next meeting they're probably not going to cut a check at least a vc firm definitely won't you'll need to have at least a couple of meetings probably a meeting with the the group the the general partners but in terms of what an investor can bring it kind of depends on the investor some of them every single investor is going to tell you i'm value add and i do mm. everything to help startups you need to actually talk to portfolio companies to see if that's true or not some investors are going to be super helpful they're going to connect you with entrepreneurs connect you with other investors and try to help you find employees etc some investors are more or less just going to tell you that and do nothing so it um yeah you're going to need to talk to people find out what their reputation is and yeah i'll always look for someone who you can feel like you can trust because you can get screwed i was actually just reading the guys um the founders of fanduel just sold the company for 460 million dollars and they're walking away with nothing because the the private equity guys screwed them interesting and um how can uh, how can an an entrepreneur increase their chance of success with with, with venture capital like how would or or investor what would they do right uh, to help them like what else what are, what is what is the recipe of of a good entrepreneur getting a deal credibility and traction so accelerators can be very valuable if you can get into a tech star a 500 startups a, a y combinator that's going to give you instant um brand recognition and a bit of 
uh, credibility, traction as well. So if you've got something that's just working and hand over fist, you're making money, or at the very least, whatever your whatever your KPIs are. If you just see them going up into the right, then most investors are going to start drooling. If you don't, and going up into the right, ideally as quickly as possible. If you don't have that, then it's going to be challenging. Um, yeah. Okay. And 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 is cold is cold call an option uh, at all, or like what what do you suggest? Yeah. So cold calling and cold emailing works. Uh, it doesn't have a great success rate, but at the same time, you only need one, so it's worth the effort. Uh, ideally, you're going to want to set up some type of investment um, investment process. So, like with a HubSpot, you can you could set up a, a pipeline and drag investors through it when you hear from them. You want your investment process to be like a sales process. And these are literally sales mm-hmm. leads. You're dedicating six months of your time to raising money. And you have to think about it in a strategic way. Otherwise, things will slip through the cracks and you have a much smaller chance of being successful. Interesting. In, in, in your experience with, um, with Startup Pitch, what are some of, some of the interesting uh, pitch that you have heard that you could share that could help entrepreneurs sort of um, gauge their effort compared to what you have seen? I would say the best way to think about a pitch is you, you should have a one to two sentence statement that says who, how, what, why now, and how big. If you cover those questions, so like for instance, I, I've got a long blog post as well on this, um, the, the, the keys to a memorable elevator pitch. Mm-hmm. If you have show notes, that would be a good one for there but it's basically looking at existing companies and coming up with that pitches. So like Airbnb helps homeowners and renters find housing that tackles, uh, find housing in a $800 billion market and is only made possible today due to smartphone technology or whatever it is. So have, all of those are key, especially the why now, because timing is very important. If you, if you invented Uber 10 years ago, let's do 20 years ago. If you invented Uber 20 years ago, mm. you had jack shit because the phone technology just wasn't there. The infrastructure wasn't there. The timing is really, really important. The market opportunity size is really important. You want the VCs to be able to see, oh, this has a massive potential. We could easily have a billion, a hundred billion dollar company on our hands here. And you want to address who it is, what you're doing and why they need it. Interesting. If, if I'm an entrepreneur uh, from your vantage point, who are some of my initial hires should be like what what do you what do you think i should invest my effort and time into who are some of like initial hires that will get me maximum bang for the buck when it comes to my valuation of my corporation or what do you think i would say you want people that are complementary to you so it's going to depend on what your skill set is if you're if you're the developer that's coding you're going to want someone who can help on the business dev side if you're the business guy you're going to want devs you're going to want initially, if you're starting the business, the, the co-founders are all the salesmen. That's how it works. You can't really afford to hire anyone. When you are hiring someone or adding them as a co-founder, the, the culture is really important. If you screw up the culture, your company's screwed. So I would be very careful on who you're bringing on board. If they're not a good fit, if you don't like them, if you're not sure that you would be okay with living with them for a long time and eating ramen and trying to survive horrible nights, then it's probably not the right person. And I would say that's just as crucial for the first five or 10 hires for the company, because even when you're at five people, every person you add is 20% of the company. There's, mm-hmm. a, there's a big impact. So if you have a bunch of negative Nancys, then they're going to bring the company down. I would say there's not a perfect first hire for who you should hire, but generally it's going to be developers or it's going to be people to help with marketing. 
interesting interesting and um in 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 your journey as as an entrepreneur like what are some of the things that that you could recall that um or some of the some of the red herring or some of the some of the sort of uh problematic signs that businesses or, or entrepreneurs should should keep an eye a lookout on which could uh practically damage the corporation like what do what do you think of in terms of just mistake typical mistakes yeah Okay, so one of my first companies was the the crowdfunding podcast. I didn't really think about the business model ahead of time and found out quickly the only way to make money was to have an agency, which I I can't manage an agency. I'm way too ADD for that. So not thinking about what the business model is and the problem you're solving. I had another podcast that was not very defined. It was focused on bootstrapped businesses, which meant building building a business that you fund yourself, which is pretty much every freaking business, which means there's no niche. So if it's not niched enough, you're not going to be very successful. Um, other mistakes that I have made in the past, committing to too much. So yeah. definitely that can be a problem. Trying to run multiple businesses is generally challenging. Trying to run multiple startups is definitely a no-no. So if I see a company, uh, something, uh, an entrepreneur that wants to raise money and they have another company or a side gig or something else, it's an automatic no because there's just way too much. Uh, other big mistake, hiring bad people, not hiring people fast enough, trying to do it all on your own. You want to you wanna hire people and outsource the things that aren't mission critical as quickly as possible so that you can focus on stuff that actually matters. I would say those are the biggest challenges. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's uh, it sounds painful and scarbearing. So uh, definitely appreciate that. So now, um, if if I'm an entrepreneur, I'm trying to raise raise capital. Uh, what are some of the things you could suggest me I should do as as my laundry list of activities that I should expect and I should do? What What do you think? I would say there's a lot of good podcasts out there you could listen to just to get a better feel for what it's like to be an investor. The two that I would recommend personally, I, I have to recommend mine. That's part of my job. I'm an entrepreneur. The syndicate.vc. There's another good one as well that's called uh, The Full Ratchet. And both of those are focused on angel and venture capital investing. So you could get a better feel for what it's like from the investor side. Both Sides of the Table is a great blog as well from Mark, uh, Mark Suster, I think, looking mm -hmm. at the basically analyzing. He's been on both sides, venture capitalist and investor. And uh, I'm sorry, and entrepreneur. Other things that you can do to be successful in addition to obviously having a great company and a great product is to start to put together a pitch deck, refine it. You probably want it to be somewhere between eight to eight to 15 slides or so. Mm. Shorter is better. Don't use too many words and try to make it uh, it needs to be salesy. It needs to have a big vision. So focus on focus on the vision and the traction and the founder. Those are the three most important things. Probably in reverse order. Interesting. I, I also want your perspective since you are you are heavily involved with e-commerce. I want your perspective on uh, overstocks.com's uh, usage of bitcoins. What do you think? Like, what do you think of uh, Bitcoin as a currency in e-commerce space? I think Bitcoin sucks because it's way too volatile for it to be a currency. I think there's other ones that are more derivative or different mediums that could ultimately, or different uh, different tokens that could ultimately make more sense, Litecoin, Bitcoin Cash, other things of that nature. I think it's very interesting. I think Overstock did it primarily as a as a token gesture, so to speak. Right. They, they they wanted the publicity, and it worked. I think I think cryptocurrency will become significantly more valuable when it comes to e-commerce. But I think we still have a long ways to go to get there. There's just not enough penetration for it to make a lot of sense for merchants to accept it. And even if there is, why the hell are you going to spend your Bitcoin? Because they're going up. Because there's only 21 million of them. So the, the economics of that don't really work well to be a currency for other for other cryptocurrencies. It works a bit better. I see ultimately us moving towards a, a non-governmental 
currency or set of currencies worldwide, although some of that is also um, idealism. Interesting. So uh, with that, uh, uh, thank you so much, Matt. So we are uh, at the tail end of the conversation. So let's spend, let's put a focus somewhat on you for next few minutes. So in your journey, uh, if I say, what would be some of the tenets that has helped you stay successful or sane throughout your uh, inception? So what would you, what would you attribute those success and, and achievements to? I would say the things that have helped me be stay sane would be lifting weights and meditation. Things that have helped me be successful. Um, I, I have a, I have my own little quote, and it's there are no rules. So thinking about that and remembering, you can pretty much do whatever the hell you want. It doesn't really matter what people tell you. You're able to try things and see what works, what doesn't, and do what you want, not what someone else's wants. I think that's very important. And then more, most recently, um, doing a better job of thinking about what I actually want. And it's hard to think about, and it's hard to do a good job of doing this, but I've been trying to commit more to focus only on things that matter to me that I want to be doing. Because otherwise, even if you are running your own business, if you're doing a lot of things that don't matter to you that you don't really want to be doing, you, you still just have a job. Interesting. Interesting. Pretty cool. And, and one thing that we ask all of our guests uh, to share about are there some of their favorite readings. Because I think we, we realize that um, reading tells a lot about their character or where they're coming from. So do you have some of your favorite reads that you could share to our, to our listeners and viewers? Yeah, so I'll, I'll share a couple. So the best sales book is designed to help prevent you from getting sold to but they didn't realize how great it was. So Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Mm. That is an absolute must read. Um, there's a lot of, I've got a bunch of resources. I like, uh, I like the Tao of Seneca. Tim Ferriss wrote it. It's just mm. stoic thinking. It's something I've been trying to do a better job with. Uh, zero to one. There's a lot of great business mm. books, to be honest. Um, Yuval Harari's um, Sapiens was very interesting. For me, I need to not read business books. That's more my problem is I'm too focused on business. And I, I would say this probably applies to a lot of people. I listen to a lot of podcasts though. So I'm, I'm listening to as much as I can in terms of learning. I've gone through and probably tens of thousands of hours at this point. I, I do three, three and a half X podcasts speed. So it helps me with consuming content and trying to learn. I would say that's been the most important for me on a learning sense. And then I think the, the last thing for books would be Fiction. So fiction is actually very helpful for me because it's an ability to turn off. So I would say for people that are always turned on, quit reading the business books. It doesn't count as working. It doesn't count. It's generally speaking, purely motivational. Very, very few are tactical. And I would say if it's not a mindset book, hmm. then you're probably reading it because you think you should be. So I would, I mean, if you've got the time to read something and you're, you're losing your mind, go pick up something fun. And, and do you have any, any fictional favorite that you could share? Oh, God, I love, I love tons of fiction. Um, to, too much, to, too much <laughs> to list and lots of young adult stuff from when I was younger. <laughs> awesome. So um, let's I think we are at the tail end of, of the conversation. So as a last question, so if you want our listeners and viewers to take away something from this conversation, what would, would that be? What would be a closing remark uh, for our listeners and viewers? Uh, this would be, this would be a bit new, but I would have it be, I'd have it be a two part thing. There are no rules and be the change you want to see in the world. So figure out what you want to do and just go do that. That would be, that would be the most important thing. So like for now, right now with me, 
that that's fringe FM. I'm trying to change the way people think about the future and make it more long-term oriented. Because when we think too short-term, we focus on things that are less relevant and actually create a more negative world. If we're able to have a longer-term time horizon, we're able to escape the the day-to-day drop, um, whatever the word is, the day-to-day problems of improving the here and now and focus on improving something larger. Because when it's short-term, it's pretty much always comes down to money. So I would say think about things in a longer term time horizon. Do what you want to do. Do what matters, and stop wasting your time on shit that doesn't. Interesting. With that, uh, thank you so much, Matt, for uh, spending your generous amount of time with us, walking us through some of the uh, intricacies and nuances of, of running a startup and as an investor. So I, that's really really helpful for our community. You are always welcome back on the podcast uh, to share your journey and. Uh, to our listeners and viewers, so we'll post um, the link to Fringe FM and I think a bunch of links that, that Matt suggested for you to check out. Uh, do take time to check out, do sort of reach out to him. I think I've also we, have, we will also list his Twitter handle. Um, say hi if, if you like his podcast. And with that, Matt, thank you so much and um, wish you nothing but success in your startup and, and entrepreneurial journey uh, and, and your investment journey. And again, you're always back, welcome back on the podcast. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Vishal. It's been fun. If you guys are interested in the in the the big four tech companies, the future of e-commerce and all of that good stuff, uh, I, I also read a book, uh, The Gods of the Valley. It's basically looking at Apple, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and how they control the future and what the future for each of those companies looks like. So a lot of that plays into the e-commerce and stuff we talked about. We didn't talk about it as much, but you can find that on Amazon if you're interested. Awesome. And, and again, we'll post that link uh, on the description as well. So again, thank you so much, Matt. Awesome, and thanks as well. And uh, yeah, good luck, guys. Go kick some butt. Good. I thought I was sick of home, but actually I was homesick. Never really knew that I would have to grow up so quick. I'm so uncomfortable, don't know anybody here. Just a couple dudes that I met once, that's it. Then I go into the booth feeling nervous. Got butterflies in my stomach like I'm so worthless. Is the mic gone? I don't know how to work this. Inside I'm breaking down, I hope I'm not up on a certain